In any case, I, I'm going to try tonight to pull together uh, different elements of what we've been talking about. Uh, I'm calling tonight's class, if we can, Empire Building and Decolonization. with a special focus on Africa. We've touched on the Middle East. We, last week we looked at Latin America. We've been trying to uh, situate ourselves in North America in terms of some conception of the West and how uh, we fit into that conception in this part of the world. So tonight I want to focus especially uh, on uh, Africa. Empire building and decolonization, in a sense this is the, this is the core concept when it comes to how I'm seeing globalization. And I've, I've explained that in different ways. Uh, empire building uh, especially European empire building after 1492, I see as the most dynamic agency of globalization, uh, the most powerful uh, instrument of uh, communications, creating com communications networks that pull people into a, uh, a increasingly large and many-faceted uh, network or networks of, of, of interaction, of interactivity. Uh, there's an image that I've been wanting to put up for some time, which uh, I think is, a, is an interesting um, counterpoint to imperialism and imperial globalization. This is a a text uh, written in 1375. Uh, legendary people depicted in a French manuscript script typify fanciful European concepts of the inhabitants of unknown lands. One has uh, his face on his chest, another a large, uh, a uh, another a foot large enough to shade himself from from the sun, a third, a single eye. Fables of such odd beings often place them in Asia, a continent thought to have great wealth, magic, and many natural wonders. So uh, here's uh, depictions of how human beings are in different parts of the world, as it was seen uh, before 1492. So the, the idea that uh, human beings share a common character, personality, that we are much the same, that we don't have these massive differences uh, among us in different parts of the world. This is not uh, to be taken for granted. This is a fairly new idea in, in, in human history. Uh, so empire building, this is a powerful uh, image of uh, Imperialists looking at China, 
it's a uh, depiction of uh, imperial vampires, France, England, Russia, Japan, and Germany get their claws into China. And it's it from around 1900, so there's a, there's a Japan, and there is uh, the Germans, and there is the French, and there is the English, and there is Russia. It's a, it's a very dark image of imperialism and the voraciousness of, of imperialism. On the other hand, uh, here's a uh, celebration of uh, Queen Victoria's uh, 60th anniversary as uh, the imperial monarch of the British Empire. Uh, contained troops of every color, every continent, every race. So here is uh, uh, the, the uh, 60th anniversary of Queen Victoria's reign. And Victoria became a kind of image or symbolism of, uh, of, of imperialism. Here's a map of Africa, and uh, the uh, this is the, the British Empire as it was in uh, 1920, British Africa and the Middle East in 1920, and so uh, you can see a, a big part of Africa is part of the British Empire, and also uh, the Middle East. Iraq, um, the uh, trusteeship over, over Palestine, and of course we, we learned about how the Balfour Declaration in 1917 established the basis of a Jewish homeland, which would become Israel in, in uh, 1948. Uh, here's another uh, image of the British Empire. Recall these as a child seeing these types of depictions quite often. Here's uh, an image of the different uh, uh, military bases, uh, naval bases supporting the worldwide military network uh, in, uh, of the British Empire. So uh, this image of uh, imperialism, uh, this account of imperialism has figured largely and prominently in, uh, in the study we've done to date. Tonight I want to uh, focus on a particular book, uh, and it's by Martin Meredith, uh, The Fate of Africa, From the Hopes of Freedom to the Heart of Despair, A History of Fifty Years of Independence. And uh, I found this uh, quite fascinating. It's uh, clarified a lot of uh, issues that uh, I had some inkling of an understanding of, but it's given a lot more uh, depth. Um, I traveled in uh, Central Africa and East Africa when I was uh, 19, 20 years old. Um, I worked for uh, a documentary crew. I happened to meet them in the airport in Nairobi, and uh, they were filming uh, the East African Safari Rally. It was a French documentary firm documenting uh, uh, Datsun Motors contribution to the East African Safari Rally, and uh, 
So that was a, a time when Japan was just starting to come on with its uh, automotive products. They had the 240Z. They cleaned up. They they beat everybody uh, by a long shot. Um, in any case, that was uh, I was 19, 20 years old, traveling in Uganda, Kenya, Congo, and I, I'd have to say it was uh, one of the great adventures uh, of my life. So, uh, some of these uh, issues um, I reflect back, and of course, I you know I was young and didn't understand a lot of history in those days, but uh, it's interesting to look back and and think about uh, what was uh, what you were seeing. I was traveling in this area, in here, and uh, I'm going to focus tonight, in, at least in the first half, on a particular study of uh, the Belgian Congo and the decolonization of the Belgian Congo. But let's just take a, a brief uh, survey of Africa as it was in 1955. So all these uh, areas that are shaded in represent parts of Africa that are under European uh, domination. So the British, the French, the Belgians, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Italians. Uh, much of Africa south of the Sahara was divided in the late 19th century. And there was a kind of scramble for uh, colonies in Africa. In, in 1955, uh, there was Egypt. Uh, there were you know, very few parts of Africa that had a, a, some degree of independence. Uh, Egypt um, had been basically under the authority of Great Britain, although it was informal. Um, King Farouk, there was a, uh, some kind of a monarchy that um, asserted some kind of jurisdiction, and it was pretty much a puppet uh, regime of uh, a puppet government under British control. And the British, of course, were very, uh, very zealous in protecting the Suez Canal, which was uh, linked to India, which dramatically shortened the route to India. And, of course, it increasingly became a key to uh, importing oil from the Middle East into Europe. So uh, uh, in... Uh, the early 1950s, uh, an army general or an army official by the name of Nasser uh, took over. Um, there was a, a plot from within the army, and the uh, the uh, British puppet regime was displaced by a very nationalistic uh, regime in in Egypt. Uh, Egypt and the British Empire kind of shared jurisdiction over over Sudan. Uh, there was uh, an ancient uh, monarchy in Ethiopia with Emperor Haile Selassie governing Ethiopia. And Liberia is a very interesting uh, case where um, Liberia was created as a jurisdiction to receive uh, freed slaves. So there was a, some d degree of concern in the United States that these freed slaves would set a bad example. Uh, how would you maintain slavery when there was the example of freed slaves? So Liberia was created as a, as a place to take American blacks or to encourage American blacks to, to settle there. Uh, 
extreme, it became an extremely violent uh, regime in, in, in recent years. If any of you saw A Lord of War with Nicolas Cage, it's a, an excellent movie. It's about uh, the small arms trade, and it, it does a kind of expose of Liberia, uh, and it demonstrates that uh, the small arms trade to Africa is responsible for a, a huge bloodbath in that continent, which goes on to this day that uh, was not formally a colony, was uh, South, the Union of South Africa, which received a kind of independence from Great Britain in 1910, uh, but only the whites had the vote in, uh, in that Union of South Africa. And so uh, the white minority regime uh, opposed the kind of decolonization that was being extended to, to the rest of Africa. And that uh, created a very bitter uh, situation in that part of part of Africa. Of course, when you think of the way the British Empire was uh, organized, part of the empire covers territories where indigenous peoples are in the majority, and part of the empire covers territories where uh, it's predominantly European settlers and their descendants. These are sometimes known as the white dominions. So uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada are obviously part of that. And South Africa felt itself, the white settlers in that part of the world felt themselves to be in that category, a white dominion. But of course the majority population were not white. The majority population are black, are indigenous peoples uh, from that part of the, the territory. So um, so those are the, the parts of Africa that are not colonies. But now let's look at uh, the, the majority of the lands. If we go back to the uh, document camera, that, uh, of course, there is the, uh, a, a large area of northwestern Africa, which is uh, under French jurisdiction. And, uh, of course, uh, Algeria is going to prove to be a particularly uh, contentious part of, of, of this zone. Um, if I can... The uh, French Empire gave up much of its gave up its colonies in Southeast Asia. One of those colonies was Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. And of course the United States took over uh, the imperial role that France had in Vietnam after 1954 with the view that if they didn't step in, that area would fall to uh, communism. Uh, France, however, was very adamant. The French people and the French government were very adamant that they weren't going to withdraw from Algeria. Algeria was seen as actually part of France, was organized as, a, as part of France. And the French uh, Empire uh, was quite different in its structure than the British Empire. The French Empire uh, encouraged a kind of assimilation, a kind of civilizational mission where it uh, encouraged the elites in these communities to uh, think of themselves as French citizens, and they, they were represented, these 
territories were represented in the French Parliament, and there was a view that uh, you should try to identify your identity, your your culture, your your language with with the culture of France. So uh, when the the uh, when the Algerian War was uh, going poorly, with the, the the contention over the future of Algeria, and it became a a violent struggle. Uh, de Gaulle was brought back into power uh, with the view that he would uh, preserve Algeria for France. Um, so, so that uh, part of uh, of uh, Africa was uh, the the zone of extreme uh, contention between 1956 and 1962. Here's Nasser with somebody we'll be discussing tonight, uh, Nkrumah, Kwame Nkrumah. And uh, well, let's read the a family affair. Nkrumah pictured with his friend Colonel Nasser in 1966. In his first year as Ghana's leader, Nkrumah asked Nasser for help in finding a wife. Nkrumah eventually chose an Egyptian woman he did not meet until his wedding day. So Nasser, who I discussed uh, a few moments ago, Nasser, of course, is trying to uh, generate Arab unity, pan-Arab unity, but he also sees himself as playing a major role in Africa as a kind of sponsor of, of, of decolonization in Africa. And here he is with, uh, with Nkrumah, um, Kwame Nkrumah, who is the uh, leader of decolonization in Gold Coast, which becomes known as Ghana. So uh, yeah, the Gold Coast uh, would become Ghana. Uh, the British colonies included Nigeria. Nigeria, which is uh, an oil-rich country, um, is a very uh, complex uh, ethnic community. There's many ethnic groups, many distinct languages in Nigeria, and. Uh, uh, there's a big part in the north which is primarily Muslim, um, and uh, it's proven to be an extremely uh, difficult country to govern. There is really no um, Nigerian identity before the British imposed their imperial system. Uh, and uh, the British are uh, in Kenya, Uganda, um, that's the... That's the territory that I traveled in in 1970-71, and I got into Congo, and uh, well, I'll, I'll discuss that, but it, it occurred to me recently that I was there not too many years after Che Guevara uh, went to that part of the world from Cuba with the view that he was going to urge on and help on a, a revolution against imperialism, an international revolution. And so the um, Cubans would play a very major role in African politics, especially when it came to uh, the decolonization of the Portuguese colonies, Angola and Mozambique. And Portugal was the last uh, of the um, European powers to uh, give up its colonies. Um, it didn't give up Macau in uh, in China until 1999, and so Angola and Mozambique would prove to be uh, 
areas of extreme contention in the Cold War. And uh, Rhodesia, of course, would be uh, a zone of great contention. Rhodesia, named after Cecil Rhodes, the uh, the imperialist, the British imperialist who promoted the mining uh, industry in that in that part of the world. And of course, the Italians uh, have uh, have a, a, a long history of involvement in. Uh, in Africa, especially the, the Maghrib, going back to the days of the Roman Empire, for that matter. But they're quite involved in Somalia, in Ethiopia. So, so this is the uh, zone that we're going to uh, focus on tonight. Uh, although I do want to talk about um, different ways of thinking about empire, different approaches to empire. But I thought I would uh, start with a case study of uh, Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba, the first Prime Minister of Congo. And uh, Patrice Lumumba was uh, removed from office uh, very early on was considered to be uh, flirting with communism, uh, was um, ruthlessly, violently murdered, and uh, in his place, an army general was uh, was set up. Uh, Mobutu is his name, and uh, he, he, he renamed himself Sesiseko and renamed the Congo Zaire. Uh, so... Um, if I can read this caption here, uh, the Congo 1960, his arms rope behind him, the Congo's ousted Prime Minister, uh, Patrice Lumumba, is hauled off to prison after being captured by Colonel Mobutu's troops. If I die, tant pis, he told a friend, uh, the Congo needs martyrs. Badly beaten, he was executed by a firing squad in Katanga under the command of a, a Belgian officer. So, uh, The uh, chapter devoted to this uh, account of uh, what went on in the in the Congo is uh, called Heart of Darkness, and Heart of Darkness, of course, is uh, is uh, the name of um, a novel by Joseph Conrad, and uh, I brought it in with me. I don't just don't see it uh, easily accessible right at the moment. I'll find it uh, uh, presently, but I. Heart of Darkness. How many of you have heard of or have read Heart of Darkness? Yeah, it, I remember reading it in high school. It was. Yeah, it's the basis for Apocalypse Now. Um, I, I, rem I remember um, that book and uh, Death of a Salesman from those plays you did in high school. Uh, it's a very um, dark, uh, ominous uh, account. Uh, written by Joseph Conrad, uh, and uh, Joseph Conrad actually was a steamboat uh, driver on the Congo River in uh, in the days of uh, Leopold. So, um, so uh, I thought we'd just go through some of this text, and I connect 
this text to other texts. Uh, here's another uh, picture of uh, Patris Lumumba uh, when he's taken into custody. So there's a, a general agreement uh, on the part of the United States CIA, the government of Belgium, and uh, his opponents in Congo that uh, Lumumba had to go. Lumumba had to be uh, eliminated. And uh, so here he is, uh, prime minister of his country, um, handed over essentially to his enemies within within the Congo. And uh, uh, he was uh, in his 30s when he became prime minister. Uh, so in, uh, in the uh, speech where... Congo became independent, and there was a, a flurry of um, flurry of passing over the power from these European empires to uh, to different governments in Africa. Especially in 1960, uh, there was uh, about 25 of these African colonies that became countries in, in 1960, and uh, Belgium very quickly um, uh, responded to this with its own independence movement. Um, the official from the Congolese government uh, referred to Leopold the Second, who created the Free, free Congo State. Um, and uh, this Belgian official said, uh, the independence, independence of Congo constitutes... Uh, the culmination of the work conceived by the genius of Leopold II, undertaken by him with a tenacious courage and continued with perseverance uh, with Belgium. So this characterization of Leopold II, was, uh, of Leopold II, was seen as a, an outrage uh, um, by some of the Congolese members present. Uh, and uh, Patrice Lumumba, who uh, was more or less self-educated, who came up through the Postal uh, Workers' Union in, in, in Congo. Um, he uh, responded with his own uh, impromptu speech, and uh, he said at this uh, independent ceremony event, we have known uh, sarcasm and insults, endured blows morning, noon, and night, because we were niggers. We've seen our lands despoiled under the terms of what was supposedly the law of the land, but which only recognized the right of the strongest. We've seen that the law was quite different for a white than for a black, accommodating for the former, cruel and inhumane for the latter. We've seen the terrible suffering of those banished to remote regions because of their political opinions or religious beliefs, exiled within their own country. Their fate was truly worse than death itself. And finally, who can forget the volleys of gunfire in which so many of our brothers perish, the cells, where the, the cells where the authorities threw those who would not submit to a rule where justice meant oppression and exploitation. So this is obviously was a, a very different view of things than recognizing the genius of Leopold. Uh, if we go to uh, the account given in the text uh, by Martin Meredith, uh, Let's let's pick up his account of some of this history and then look at this history from other angles as well. 
1885, after much maneuvering, Leopold attained international approval for his personal empire, calling it the Congo Free State. It was an area of nearly 1 million square miles, 75 times the size of Belgium and 1 13th of the African continent. It included a web of interconnecting rivers navigable by steamboat running deep into the interior and a wealth of resources such as ivory, palm oil, timber, and copper. Pondering a choice of title for himself, Leopold at first considered Emperor of the Congo, but he eventually settled for the more modest uh, King Sovereign. I dropped into Congo, and it hadn't yet changed its name to Zaire, in 1971, and it was uh, a remarkably rich part of the world. Uh, every kind of natural resource you could imagine, you know, from diamonds to uh, manganese, very rare minerals. In that part of the world, there is apparently one, uh, one uh, place, uh, one um, geographic formation which produces a certain mineral which you need for cell phones. And you can only get this mineral from that one place. So you can imagine the, what the control of that one place uh, means. Uh, the part of the world where I was uh, has gone into the most crazy conflagrations between competing armies and militias. Um, part of that, of course, was the uh, outrage in uh, Rwanda where uh, Hutus uh, murdered um, Watutsis. Uh, Watutsis were seen by the Belgians, by the French, by the different uh, imperial powers as a kind of master race, and they were given authority over other peoples in in the days of uh, European imperialism. And uh, the resentments uh, were huge, emerging from that from that time. And uh, in any case, uh, when I was in Rwanda. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful part of the world, a part of, uh, and obviously part of this uh, area that is, is rich in natural resources. Um, so if we go back, uh, Leopold's uh, next fortune after um, after um, ivory, ivory from the tusks of elephants, with the invention of the pneumatic tire fitted first to buy bicycles and then to motor cars in the 1990s, demand for rubber and the price of it soared. Using a system of slave labor, concession companies sharing the profits with Leopold, uh, he stripped the Congo's equatorial forests of all the wild rubber uh, that they could lay their hands on, imposing quotas on villagers and taking hostages when necessary. Um, it goes on to describe the uh, uh, growth in that industry, 100 tons of rubber in 1890, in 1901, 6,000 tons of rubber. So uh, the beginning of the automotive age, the beginning of uh, the use of bicycles and then uh, cars in the early 20th century uh, created a huge uh, market, a huge demand for rubber, which now is synthetic, but in those days was coming directly from uh, rubber trees from the sap of rubber trees. But Leopold's re regime provoked uprisings and revolt and left behind a landscape of burned villages, terrified refugees, starvation and disease, 
Ultimately, his rule came to depend on the force publique, an army composed of white, Afri uh, white officers and African auxiliaries, no notorious for its brutal conduct. By the end of his 23-year uh, reign as king sovereign, Leopold had become one of the richest men in Europe. But the Congo had lost several million people, possibly as many as 10 million, half of its population. In an essay on exploration, Joseph Gonrad described the activities, uh, the activities of Leopold's Congo Free State as the vilest scramble for the loot that ever disfigured the history of human conscience. So we're looking at a crime against humanity of comparable magnitude to Hitler's uh, assault on Jews, homosexuals, and gypsies in the Second World War. This is a, this is a, a crime against humanity on a vast scale uh, conducted by uh, Leopold, who, who became a kind of proxy for the United States in a way. It's a fascinating account, which we'll go into presently, of how Leopold acquired this uh, empire in the middle of Africa. Um, here's the uh, here's a depiction of the Congo Free State. So you can see it's basically the the drainage basin of the Congo River, which is one of the world's uh, largest rivers. Uh, and uh, this uh, territory, uh, he acquired more or less as his personal proprietary domain. In other words, he owned this territory, so he structured the law and its resources, and obviously he considered the resources to include the human beings. And uh, so it, it does represent a kind of modern-day return to uh, a form of slavery. Um, so let's see how this history is depicted in uh, Adam, Adam Hochschild's, um, Adam Hochschild's King Leopold's uh, Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. And uh, it's published uh, by, by a Hot Mifflin Company in Boston. And it's first published in uh, 1998. So here is uh, Leopold as a, as a young man. Uh, of course, Belgium uh, was not seen as an imperial country. Uh, Leopold played on that. Um, this area was uh, supposedly discovered by Henry Morton Stanley. Uh, and uh, here he is. Um, he... Um, traveled up the Congo and made treaties with the indigenous peoples. He depicted himself as, a, as a, an American, although he was actually from Britain. And the United States actually considered his expedition as vesting title or vesting jurisdiction in the Congo basin uh, based on the doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery was still alive and well in uh, uh, this this time period, the late 19th century, uh, uh, 
Lewis and Clark, of course, had deployed the doctrine of discovery when they went up the Missouri River and across the Pacific to the uh, across the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific. Uh, the corps of exploration used this uh, used this um, um, doctrine to justify the claims, the U.S. claims. Interestingly, of course, uh, Lewis and Clark were latecomers. Um, the Northwest Company had been well down in there, and uh, so so it was a pretty um, bogus uh, claim. And of course, the whole concept of discovery uh, is a is a, a pretty bogus concept because, of course, it it completely precludes recognition and appreciation of the indigenous peoples. And of course, how can something be discovered when people are already there? But of course, it makes an assumption about certain kind of people as being more advanced, more civilized than, than other kinds of people.